This morning we're very blessed as well to have a special guest who will be opening the Word of God to us, a classmate, a military man, one who has served the Lord with integrity and uprightness that I have known to divide the Word correctly. He has always been a very studious and diligent uh, man of God, a workman whom I would say does not need to be ashamed and who correctly divides the Word of Truth. Chaplain Alan Lenz serves our Coast Guard. He has served in the Navy and he has done so for many years and he has been a good brother in Christ, a role model for me that I admire and let's welcome him with a warm applause this morning. Well, good morning. It's, um, it is always a privilege to stand in this pulpit. Brother, I, I appreciate your words and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, open the word. I want to add my uh, happy Father's Day to the ones that have been, uh, been offered. I, I, I need to, I guess I need to apologize though because I have the best kids in the world. Um, <laughs> I have four reasons to be very thankful, and, and soon there will be a fifth, so um, I am blessed. Well, Pastor Joe asked me that when I preached this morning, that I finish a series that I began some time ago on the 1st of August of uh, earlier uh, this year, 2010, last year. Um, we started at that time a two-part series in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. And there Paul describes the complementary roles of husband and wife in the marriage relationship. Now when we started that, we got as far as verse 24. And uh, verses 22 to 24 describe the wife's responsibility. And that is one, if we summarize it, of a willing submission to her husband's loving Christ-like leadership, really as an expression of her submission to Christ. Now, at that time, I told you husbands that your turn was coming. I didn't realize that that was going to be on Father's Day of all days. As I uh, thought about that, I wasn't too sure that I wanted to bring a very challenging message from God's Word to fathers on Father's Day. But as I returned to my study of Ephesians 5, I realized something, and that is this, that really what I'm going to be doing is showing you husbands how to love yourselves. And what could be better than that on Father's Day? So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to show you husbands how you can more effectively love yourselves. Now, now wives, please don't get up and leave, okay? Stay with me. I, I, I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, let me say one more word as we get started. I, I'm not going to go into the overall context of, of these verses here, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, except to say that these verses on authority and submission occur in a broader context of what we would call the worthy walk. And, and it is one where believers are to submit to one another and where authority and submission is a basic dynamic with which God has set up institutions to function. Now, I covered some of that in the part one of this message, and I know you can get that from, uh, from the audiovisual table if, if you want that. So we're going to dispense with that. Um, let's go ahead and pray. Ask the Lord's blessing on our time in the Word, and then we'll read the text together. Would you please join me? Lord, we do count it a great privilege to have Your Word as we were reminded of the great 
the contributions that saints from England have made over the years and how many, many churches have died. Lord, we count it uh, a precious privilege to have your word, to be part of a fellowship where you are exalted, where your word is esteemed. And Lord, we ask your assistance. We pray that you would illumine the eyes of our hearts, that you would give utterance, that you would give um, concentration and keep us free from distraction, that we would learn from this text what it is you would have us to learn by your grace, and we'll give you the glory for that in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, Ephesians 5, I'm going to start at verse 22. We'll read to verse 33 just to get the flow of the context. Ephesians 5.22, Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respect her husband. Now this morning we're going to pick this up at verse 25, and we're going to be looking at the love of the husband. We can break this section down, verses 25 to 33, into two broad sections. First of all, in verses 25 all the way to verse 32, we have the explanation of this love. And then in verse 33, we have what I would call the exhortation to this love. So let's look first at the explanation of this love, verses 25 to 32. And here, what I want to show you is five characteristics that define the husband's love for his wife. Let's look at the first one. The first characteristic that should define a husband's love for his wife is this. It should be an intelligent love. An intelligent love. Look at the first part of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Stop there for a minute. This love that the Apostle Paul mentions is a love of choice. The last couple of weeks, Pastor Joe has been explaining the agape love, storge love, phileo, family love. This is agape. This is the love of choice, the love of will. It is an act of the will that is marked by understanding. And if we consider that in the whole flow of the rest of the passage here, it is a love that understands... The goal of the love itself. It understands what the outcome will be. And as I thought about that, and as I studied this passage, that is a very motivating reality. 
Men, if we understand the love that we are to have for our wives and what the end point of that love will be, what God's intention for it is, that will be a very motivating thing. So even though it's challenging, it is incredibly motivating. And one of the things that motivates us to do is be on our knees on a daily basis asking the Lord to give us His grace and His wisdom and His ability to love our lives, our wives this way. He says, love your wives, this is a command. The encouraging thing about that is that what God commands, He also empowers. And the point is this, in calling you to Himself, men, in placing His Holy Spirit within you, the living God is giving you, has given you, the ability to love your wives this way. In Romans chapter 5, The Apostle Paul is talking about the blessings of righteousness that are given to us when he calls us into a relationship with himself. In verse 5 of that chapter, we read this, that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the point is this, having experienced conversion, you have everything that you need that empowers you to love your wives this way. This is the first characteristic of this kind of love that a husband should have for his wife. It should be an intelligent love. Secondly, it should be a sacrificial love. Go back to the text, the second part of verse 25. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as is literally in the same manner. The husband's love for his wife is to reflect Christ's love for his church. But what specifically does this look like? Well, that's answered in the rest of the verse. It says that Christ delivered Himself up for her. Literally, He gave Himself up. This is a a verb that means to hand oneself over to the authority of another. Specifically, this is a reference to what Christ would do on the cross. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, we read this. Jesus said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered, that's our word, to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death. Jesus Christ came to go to the cross. He stepped out of eternity into time, took upon Himself a fully human nature, apart from our sin nature. He lived on this earth. He perfectly kept the law of His Father and was therefore absolutely righteous. He did that so that when He went to the cross, His righteousness could be given to us as He took upon Himself our sin, paid the penalty for that sin, and brought us back into a right relationship with God. Therefore, if we have peace with God, we have a hope in heaven, we have all the blessings of God. This is Father's Day. If, you, if you're a father, you've been given the gift of a wife, and you are to be loving her this way. I should say, by the way, that I I, I appreciate the fact that our younger folks are with us today. Because if you're not married, most of you will be. 
and you get a lot of different messages out in the world about what love looks like, about what a husband should do, about what a wife would do, and you know what? They're all backwards. So it's good for you at this point to be looking at what the Scriptures say, what God says is His plan for marriage. Jesus came for the purpose of going to the cross. And the cross, for Him, was never out of view. At the very beginning of His earthly ministry, John the Baptist looked at Him and said, There goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Jesus continued in His ministry, He never got far from the cross. At the end of His earthly life, shortly before the crucifixion in John 12, Jesus said to those who were following Him, He said, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, meaning the cross, and all that He would suffer. He said, But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So the husband's love for his wife, says Paul, should be patterned after this selfless, self-giving love. But how should this be worked out in practical terms? I like the story that commentator James Montgomery Boyce tells. When Cyrus was the king of Persia, the wife of one of his trusted generals was accused of treason and was condemned to die. The general was initially unaware that this was going on. He got word of the situation as his wife was actually standing before Cyrus about to be executed. As soon as he heard about it, he rushed to the palace, rushed into Cyrus's throne room, threw himself on the floor and said, Oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Cyrus, by all historical accounts, was a noble and extremely sensitive man, Boyce says. He was touched by this offer. Cyrus said, love like this must never be spoiled by death. Then he gave the husband and his wife back to each other and let the wife go free. As they walked away happily, the husband said to his wife, Did you notice how kindly the king looked at us when he gave you the pardon? The wife replied, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. Now, chances are, men, most of us are not going to have the the opportunity or the necessity to literally die for our wives. But having to live with your wife, with this sacrificial, self-giving love, can be just as much of a challenge. What does this look like in practical terms? Well, let me suggest a couple of things. I I think, at a minimum, it involves putting your wife's needs and wants and desires ahead of your own. Setting aside your plans and your priorities, if need be. 1 Peter 3.7 calls you to live with your wife in an understanding way. Literally, that is according to knowledge. And to grant her honor. What does that look like for you? If you're unsure, let me suggest that you ask your wife. That would lead to a very profitable, fruitful conversation. And probably some challenging applications. So a husband's love for his wife should be, first of all, an intelligent love. Secondly, it should be a sacrificial love. 
That takes us to our third point that really further develops the second, and that is this. uh, The husband's love for his wife should be a sanctifying love. That's in verses 26 and 27. And what we have here is a twofold purpose, really, for which Christ gave himself up for the church. There's an immediate purpose and there's an ultimate purpose. Let's look first at the immediate purpose. Look with me at verse 26. Ephesians 5.26 So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now this is Christ's immediate purpose for why he went to the cross. And this immediate purpose has two aspects to it. It has a a positive aspect, if you will, and also a negative aspect. The positive aspect, that he might sanctify her. Literally, to make her holy. The idea is separating her from all that is common and all that is base and all that is sinful. Separating her from a fallen sinful world to God for his Use for His blessing, for His benefit, for service to Him. The negative aspect is that He might sanctify her having cleansed her. The idea there is to remove sin and guilt. It's the idea of purifying from sin to make one holy. These two terms broadly together refer to All that Christ has done and is doing for His church. In saving her, in cleansing her, the whole ongoing process of sanctification that we're in, we call it progressive sanctification, that starts at the moment of conversion and continues throughout life until we see the Lord face to face. The Lord is going to develop that for us in our text in verse 27. But I need to, before we leave verse 26, I need to very quickly address an important point. Look back at the verse. This is the means by which Christ accomplishes His saving and sanctifying work in His church. The end of verse 26 says, Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, let me tell you, first of all, what that is not. This is the passage that the Roman Catholic Church gets their doctrine of baptismal regeneration from. The idea that by entering the waters of baptism, usually in infancy, that a person is cleansed of sin and is brought into the church. That by the mere act of going into the waters of baptism, saving grace is conveyed. That is emphatically not what this scripture teaches. We don't have time to go into all of it, but if that were true, it would contradict everything the scriptures say about salvation, either by teaching or by illustration. Let me just give you a couple of verses to make a note of. You can go back and look at these if you want to. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And Luke chapter 23, verse 43, just to name a few. This is a reference to water baptism. Some people try to avoid that error by going to an opposite extreme and say, well, this is just spiritual baptism. It's not. It says, by the washing of water with the Word. Okay, Water is specifically mentioned. But, so, so this is water baptism. But, beloved, hear me. This is not baptism apart from 
what baptism is supposed to illustrate. Apart from a spiritual union with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and that newness of life. Water baptism is to be an outward illustration of that inward reality. That's what this is talking about. A couple of verses there if you want to look at them. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and Titus 3, verse 5. The text says that by means of the washing of water with the Word is how Christ accomplished and is accomplishing His work in our life. Word here is interesting. It specifically refers to the spoken Word as opposed to the written Word. By the washing of water with the Word. So because this is a spoken Word, it raises a couple of questions. And I want to address those quickly. What is this Word that is being spoken, and who is speaking it? Some people say, well, this word, since we're talking about water baptism, is the baptism formula, and the officiant, the one doing the baptizing, the pastor, is speaking it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit during the baptism. Other people say, no, this is the, this is, these are the words of the one being baptized who is confessing their commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which is why they're in the waters of baptism in the first place. But let's let Paul be his own interpreter here. I think it's better to see that this is a reference to the spoken word of God in general as that word is studied, as it's applied, and as it is spoken in the life of the believer. Look at Romans chapter 6, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Paul is talking about the spiritual armor and the warfare that is part of our daily life in Christ. And he says in verse 17, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word, the spoken Word of God. Okay? Not only that, but we see Christ's own example using the sword of the Spirit. Where do we do that? In Matthew chapter 4, remember, after Jesus was baptized, He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Three times, Satan comes and he tempts the Lord. How does the Lord respond? Every time He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus was, he quoted three times from the book of Deuteronomy, interestingly, as he was spending 40 days in the wilderness preparing for this confrontation, he was meditating on Israel's time in the wilderness. And each time he was confronted by a temptation, what did he do? He brought himself under the authority of the Word of God. Now, it's interesting. I don't want to go too far here because we don't have time. After that third temptation, Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. And you know what happened? Satan left. Why? Because he has to. Because Jesus is God. And Satan, as a created creature, is always under God's authority. Now, what's interesting about that is that the minute Satan showed up, Jesus could have said, Be gone. And Satan would have had to leave. He didn't do that. Why? Because I believe that Jesus himself was giving us an example of how to deal with temptation in our own lives. The importance of the spoken word. Bringing the word of God to mind, applying it in a situation, gives us victory and helps us grow in our Christian life. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, Jesus said, Father, I pray that you would sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. 
So this is Jesus' immediate purpose for which He delivered Himself up to the cross. To save the church through spiritual union with Himself in His death, burial, and resurrection, of which water baptism is the outward symbol, and to progressively sanctify believers by His Word, studied, applied, and spoken in the life. This is the immediate purpose of Christ on the cross. In verse 27, we move to the ultimate purpose. And this really, as I studied this, this is really where, where I spent a lot of time. It's, a, it's just a phenomenal passage of Scripture. Look at verse 27 of Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 27 says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. This is Christ's ultimate purpose in going to the cross. This speaks, of course, of the ultimate glorification of believers, of the church. What we see here, beloved, is the church in a highly honored position. Loved Deeply beloved by the Lord in absolute sinless perfection. In intimate, unbroken relationship with the Lord, the glorified Lord, the head of the church, as her husband. The text says that he might present to himself. This is very significant. It's, it's the idea, literally, that he might cause her to stand beside him. That's amazing. Jesus' ultimate purpose is that we, the church, would be able to stand beside Him. That is a phenomenal concept. In eternity, when the sanctification process is complete, when the church is glorified, we will be occupying that place of honor. William Hendrickson, the commentator, described this as Christ's joyful public acknowledgement and of His complete and unending delight in the church. Does that encourage you? Husbands, does that encourage you as you think about your responsibility to love your wife and to promote this process? Well, we'll say more about that. Why does that encourage you as you think about your responsibility to submit to your husband? Jesus is going to do this. And and look back at the text here. It's interesting. It says that he might present to himself. What's going on there? Well, in a typical Jewish wedding, it is the best friend of the groom who at a certain point formally presents the bride to the groom. You know what? Jesus is going to present the church to himself. Why? He's going to do away with all intermediaries because nobody's good enough. We are, we are that special. We will be that special to our Lord. He is going to present us to Himself. That place of honor. Of course, the, the wedding, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb is what's in view here. And I'll just read Revelation 19.7. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Interesting. He's going to cause us, he is going to present us to himself 
in perfect glory. Look at how the church is described in the rest of the text. He says that he might present the church in all her glory. A perfectly glorified, perfectly sinless, redeemed humanity. That's further amplified in the rest of the verse. And just like verse 26, there's kind of a two-fold description. There's a, there's a negative description, in other words, what the church will not be. And then there's a positive description of what the church will be. He says that she, might not, that she might have no spot. Spot is the idea of some sort of a stain or blemish on the body, some kind of a flaw. Now, it's interesting, this word is used only two places in Scripture. It's used here, and it's also used in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, which talks about false teachers in the fellowship who teach error and who promote immorality and who deceive and practice lawlessness. Interesting. She won't have any spot, any blemish. She won't have any wrinkle. And, and, and this is an interesting word. It's the only place. It means wrinkle. Some, some sort of a flaw in, in appearance on the body. But it's the only place it's used in the, in the New Testament. The point is this. When the Lord presents the church to Himself, she will have absolutely no moral or spiritual stain whatsoever. That's what she's not. Let's look at what she is quickly. The text says that she should be holy and blameless. Again, there's a repetition here because of the importance. No moral or spiritual flaw. Absolute moral and spiritual perfection. That same pair of adjectives, holy and blameless, is used by Paul at the beginning of this book. Turn quickly back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. I'll start in verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should, would be holy and blameless before Him. God is going to do this. Christ is going to accomplish what He set out to do. Now think about this for a minute. The church is going to stand beside Christ and be a wife who is fully fit and corresponding to Him. That's exactly what Adam, or that's that's exactly what God said about Eve when he, before he made her for Adam, I will make him a helper that is corresponding to him. Because of what Christ will do, because of the progressive sanctification process that you are in, that I am in, and that the end result that the Lord will bring about, we are going to be a bride morally and spiritually suited for the risen and glorified Christ. Amazing. Reminds me of 1 John 3, 2, a wonderful promise. Beloved, we are now children of God. That's a reality right now. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. 
This is the husband sanctifying love for his wife. So again, what does this look like for you in practical terms? Let me suggest a couple of things. I think, first of all, it has to do with keeping alert men to moral and spiritual danger that your wife might confront. It's keeping her safe from anything that might harm her. Protecting her from really any kind of danger. Making her feel secure in every way. You know, in in Jesus calling the church, presenting the church to himself to stand beside him, that is a public acknowledgement of his love for the church. Men, do you acknowledge your love for your wife that way? Do you want everybody in the world to know how much you love your wife? That will make your wife feel very, very special and very, very secure. Making her feel secure in every way. Studying her to understand her more fully. Remember 1 Peter 3, 7. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Sometimes I, I hear Coast Guard guys and Navy guys say, you know, I just don't understand my wife. And what I want to say is, well, have you repented of that? Now, I'm not often dealing with believers, but you know what? Our job is to understand our wives. That's what 1 Peter 3, 7 says. In light of the importance of believers' baptism and the the application of the spoken word, the centrality of the word of God, does that suggest some applications? Notice also, quickly, there's an interesting tension as you compare this text with Revelation 19. Right In this text, Jesus presents the bride to himself and we discuss what that would look like. Revelation 19 says, The marriage supper of the Lamb has come and the wife of the Lamb, the bride, has made herself ready. It's kind of a tension between the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man. Men, does that suggest something to you in terms of if it's the Lord who is sanctifying your wife and is going to present her flawless, are you praying for her? Are you beseeching the Lord to work in her life to bring her to full maturity? Are you resting in the Lord because He is going to get that done? Philippians 1.6 that we already heard about and we sang about this morning. Both are true. Ephesians 5.27 and Revelation 19.7. Interesting tension there. So, this is the husband's love for his wife. That is, first of all, to be an intelligent love. Secondly, a sacrificial love. Thirdly, a sanctifying love. And then fourthly, in verses 28 to 30, a caring love. A caring love. And and the focus of this point uh, happens in the middle of verse 29. Look at that verse with me, if you would. It says that just as Christ also... uh, Let me back up. No one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. I want to focus on those two words briefly. Nourish is the idea literally to feed. And it has the idea of of continuously over a long period of time. That's where we get the translation nourishment. It has to do certainly with providing food. But it's broader than that. It has to do with providing anything that your wife might need to be healthy and strong and encouraged and continue to grow and flourish. That, That he might nourish her or nourishes it and cherishes. Cherish is, is a very, very tender word. It literally has the idea of to keep warm with one's own body heat. 
1 Thessalonians 2.7 uh, is another place where this particular word is used. Paul is talking there to the Thessalonians about how gentle his ministry was among them. And he says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares, there's our word, tenderly cares for her children. A very, very tender picture. This is to be a caring love. Note the obligation, too, that husbands have to love their wives this way. Look at verse 28. It says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Now that ought in English kind of sounds like a suggestion. It is not. That word means to owe or to be in debt. To be a debtor. To whom is the husband in debt? To his parents-in-law, right? I had to say that my... uh, my mother-in-law's in the back. No, husbands are in debt. If you have been given a wife, you know what? You are in debt to God. Why? Because Scripture says that your wife is a gift from the Lord. Proverbs nineteen fourteen: House and wealth are from a father, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Men, that lady sitting next to you is God's best gift to you on this earth. Specifically designed by Him for you to be corresponding to you to help you in the process of sanctification. We are in debt. We owe God the debt of loving our lives this way. Notice, too, the text says that husbands are to love their wives not as they love their own bodies, but as if their wives were their own bodies. That's a significant distinction. Why? Because that is actually true. When a husband and wife, when a man and woman are married, they become one. And so Paul says, husbands, your wife is part of your own body. Love her that way. Love her the way that you you would take care of her as being part of your own body. This intimates the the most intimate connection between husband and wife. Look at the end of verse 28. He who loves his own wife loves himself. And this is true in two senses. First of all, it's true because, as I said, literally, the husband and the wife are one. So, husbands, as you love your wives with this caring love, you're actually loving yourself. And it's true in the sense that what you give, you get back. Right? If you love your wife and you affirm her and you're doing these things, guess what? You're going to get all that back. If you take her for granted, and if you're impatient, and if you're unkind, guess what? That's what you're going to get back. So he who loves his wife, loves himself in a very practical sense. I remember uh, when Pastor Joe and I were in seminary, uh, has Dr. Montoya been here? You know Pastor Montoya. Pastor Montoya was famous for saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And that was his way of saying, hey, husbands, make sure you keep your wife happy. You'll be loving yourself as you love her. Verse 29 states a self-evident truth. And that is this, no one ever yet hated his own flesh. Now, we naturally, instinctively, reflexively care for ourselves. Scripture everywhere affirms this. You know, it's interesting, this 
text, this truth, completely does away with the silly notion of self-esteem. The whole teaching that has kind of grabbed the whole of our country in the last 15 to 20 years. You know, this idea that, well, people do bad things because they just don't love themselves enough. And we just need to pump up people's self-esteem. And if they feel good about themselves, they'll feel good about other people. And they won't do anything wrong. And that is kind of accepted in our culture as an unquestioned truth. But I want to ask you something. Does that stand up when examined by the light of Scripture? Well, certainly not. Let me ask you, who was Eve loving in the garden when she chose to disobey God and eat the fruit? She was loving herself. And she thought, this will be good for me. I want what I want, right? Remember the second great commandment stated by our Lord in Matthew 22. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's Jesus' assumption? Jesus' assumption there is that we love ourselves. And Jesus says to the degree that you naturally, reflexively, automatically love yourself, love your neighbor that way. Your closest neighbor is your wife, but he's talking about everyone else. What is it that causes marital discord and tension and fractures marriages? It is when, when I am loving myself more than I'm loving my wife. And I want what I want, and perhaps she's loving herself, and she wants what she wants, and then there's conflict, right? So... The text says, no one ever yet hated his own flesh. And you need to love your wife as part of your own body. Pastor Joe, I'm not sure what to do because I need to finish here. Um, Shall I stop here? What's that? Okay. Well, this is part of Christ's love for the church and a husband's love for for his wife. And, and man, I want to encourage you. I, I intend for this to be um, a significant encouragement. Because I'll circle back to where I started. This isn't something that's too hard. It's something that is radically different than the world around us. But you know what? In the body of Christ, in the salvation that you have in Him, you have supernatural power. And it is your privilege to love your wife this way. As you love your wife with an intelligent love, with a sacrificial love, with a sanctifying love, and with a caring love, you are being like the Lord Jesus Christ. Happy Father's Day. Don't forget to love yourselves today and and every day as you love your wife this way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. What a blessing it is, Lord, to open the light of your word and have it shine its radiant power and clarity upon the darkness of this world. Lord, thank you that you have given us the power to love this way. Thank you that you've given us your truth. Thank you for the assurance that as we seek to be who you've called us to be, that you are working all things out for your glory. Out to the point where you will present us to yourself as a perfect, holy, and spotless bride. Lord, how we thrill at that prospect and look forward to that day. Keep us faithful until that day. In your holy name. Amen.